tremendous challenges and opportunities exist right now for our nation's water infrastructure. In this podcast, the industry's top leaders and innovative minds share their knowledge and insights for ensuring our water systems are operating safely and efficiently. These discussions are designed to motivate and create vibrant 21st century water systems and the innovative workforce required to lead and operate them. This is 21st Century Water with your host, Aquasite founder and CEO, Mahesh Lunani. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm with Erin Mahoney, Commissioner, Environmental Services, York Region, Ontario, Canada. Erin has over 30 years experience in public and private sector and is responsible for a range of services, including water and wastewater. She is also on the board of Federal Clean Technology Foundation in Canada. For those that do not know York Region, it is an upper tier municipal structure that's providing regional services to nine municipalities covering over 1.2 million residents, just north of Toronto. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation on what Erin and her team is planning as it pertains to the future of water, not just in York Region, but more broadly in Canada. Welcome, Erin. Thank you, Mahesh. Great to be here with you. I look forward to. So, water. Why did you choose this as a profession? And can you share your journey in this sector? Sure. I think I'd have to start with the fact that I was born on the east coast of Canada in Newfoundland. And I think not only was I born there, but my deep love and connection to water was there. So from you know being a small child, I was really fascinated and engaged with water. And that inspired my learning, my bachelor's in science, my master's in engineering, all surrounded a focus on water. And from there, I spent the first 20 years of my career in the consulting industry on a wide variety of environmental and water-based projects, which I love. And after spending that kind of time in the private sector, doing lots of travel, getting exposed to really what was happening in North America and beyond in the water business, I thought about my life, my family life, and thought I wanted a deeper connection to the community that I had lived in, but not directly worked in uh, my whole career. And I made the switch to join York Region about 10 years ago and have really enjoyed through this part of my professional journey leading a team of 500 people that have such fantastic skills and insights. And what's really been rewarding to me about this piece in my professional life is the opportunity to have that deeper connection with the community and the meaning of the water services and the wastewater services and the waste and forestry services that we deliver to them. So I'm really enjoying that deeper connection and meaning, as you said, to that 1.2 million residents and the tens of thousands of businesses that form this growing region. Well, I mean, I can actually hear in your voice, and I obviously can see you, that connection to community sounds like an amazing experience that you're achieving in public sector compared to what you did for 20 years in the private sector. So that actually brings me to York Region. And as you already described, a million two residents, nine wastewater plants, you source over 80% of your water from outside, including Toronto, thousands, if I can use kilometers instead of miles, thousands of kilometers of distribution collection. 
and I've said this before, there's no dull moment, right? No. Things are happening every second, every minute. How operationally are you involved? And what are the operational challenges that you are facing that you're addressing every day? Yeah, an excellent question. And one I think that's very much on the minds of regional council is the water business. And the big driver for us is achieving operational excellence. And I often say to my staff that in water, 100% is the only mark that counts. That we've had the Waterton tragedy in Ontario where many people died of uh, drinking contaminated drinking water with E. coli. And that has informed the entire regulatory regime in Ontario and indeed beyond for the last couple of decades. And so I think what that accountability and new rigor has engendered in the minds of elected officials is a deep focus on the excellent delivery of water services to residents. So that's a big challenge for us is achieving that 100%. I think as anyone who's tried to get 100% in any kind of a test knows, uh, Mm -hmm. there are many opportunities to lose even fractions of mark. So I, I really have to put it at the feet of our operating staff that are so vigilant. We have an integrated management system that includes internal and external audits. And it's a tremendous and integrated effort by staff and and really an inspiration to me, the level of commitment to deliver this kind of excellence in a system that is growing and changing and where expectations at the political level are so high. So I'd say that is a big challenge of ours. The second and, and related one is really with that operational excellence. And if we had a system that wasn't changing every day. You know, it's easier to get 100% because you're facing the same circumstance every day. Ours is we're a fast-growing region. We're growing by 20 to 25,000 people each year, and our system is expanding. We're upgrading our plants. We're introducing new technology. We're building more linear. And so not only do we have to deliver that 100%, we have to deliver it in a system that's growing and changing. So, you know, in either of those things can be challenges, operational excellence or delivering growth capital, doing both of them at the same moment, exponentially harder. And so just really the communications between staff on the capital delivery and operations side in water, wastewater, um, making sure that teams are aligned, making sure that we've got the right culture where people are living within the bright lines, that there's no hidden agendas, I think is is something that we really focus on is creating the right climate for people to deliver their best and to be happy to work with one another as part of an aligned team, even across different uh, work units. So, That's pretty consuming. And then, you know, of course, we have a huge innovation and research agenda. And so thinking about the future, trying to do things in a more efficient way, it'd be the probably the third thing that I'd raise is something that um, informs our operational challenges and hopefully will bear fruit in the years ahead. I've never heard 100% delivery. That is, if you actually think about it from a water perspective, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, this is uh, like even when we send people to a space station, there's redundancy built up, mm-hmm. but it's never 100%. There's always some probability and chance, right? And the way you described it, you couple that 100% delivery 
excellence in a fast-growing environment creates an enormous. So I, I can only understand how you have to be on the feet every moment, every minute, every second to ensure that kind of objective. That's an outstanding, outstanding leadership perspective. So I want to actually, you talked a lot about growth, you know, adding 25,000 residents every year. Looking ahead from a strategic point of view, what are your priorities in the York region? And I'm going to briefly talk about that 2051 master plan, which is a fascinating number by itself, 2051. It's like 30 years out. Yes. You know? So can you kind of couple those two topics? Sure. So starting with our strategic priorities with the leadership of our CAO, we bring forward each term of council, which is four years, an updated uh, strategic plan. And our vision is to create strong, caring, and safe communities through our work. So that really underpins everything we do as staff and contractors that work with and for York Region. So we work to achieve that vision of strong, caring, and safe communities through this uh, STRAT plan that has basically four pillars. One is to increase economic prosperity. The second is to support community health, safety, and well-being. And you can imagine that drinking water has a big role to play there. We want to build sustainable communities and deliver trusted and efficient services. So back to that point on healthy and safe communities, and I think if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's taught us about the connection between clean and safe drinking water and public health. So we work to support that pillar of our strategic plan by delivering excellent water and wastewater services to our residents and businesses. And not only are we committed to delivering safe drinking water, but returning high quality treated wastewater to the environment. And a couple of other plans that connect directly to our long-term strategic plan is our water conservation strategy, our inflow and infiltration reduction strategy that if we get a minute, we should talk about. But it also extends to our solid waste diversion targets and waste reduction. So we're trying to drive waste out of the system and in doing so, make our communities more sustainable for the future. We also have corporate greenhouse gas reduction targets that we're achieving by electrification of the fleet, by really paying attention in water wastewater to the amount of pumping energy that we're using and finding ways to optimize that energy use and not only reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but also make our services more fiscally sustainable in the future if we can find new and more efficient ways of using technology and running our large complex uh, systems. We have these strategic plans. We report on them annually during the term of council. Like I said, every uh, four or five years, we refresh these plans. We re-energize our metrics and we recalibrate based on new knowledge and directions and feedback from our communities and elected officials as to where they want to go. But these pillars, I think, of economic prosperity, community health, sustainable communities, and trusted and efficient services have been pillars that have resonated for many years now. And I think we'll continue to do so in the future and really help inspire and direct the delivery of services in water, wastewater, amongst other things that we do at the region. So listening very carefully to your strat plan, every component of this sounds like 
it's not in the water wastewater business. You're in the resource recovery business, creating a circular economy in your community, right? And uh, you redefine what water wastewater really means. Yeah. You know, with that. I love that lens. I just am so intrigued by that lens of circularity, the possibilities of circularity, I think for sure, in water wastewater. I'd have to admit in Canada, um, Mahesh, you know, some days I think Canadians are blessed with too much water and we just don't value it in the same way that we see in Australia or the Southwest U.S. or in other jurisdictions where they're really saying, look, we really need to value water and make the highest and best use of water in all its forms, in all its dimensions. And so that's something that is a personal passion of mine to see that come to bear in Canada water reuse in a way that it's not happening, except in very limited ways today. So I think that's a big opportunity that you've mentioned there and will inform the future of of service delivery. Right. No, it sure is. You know, Pamela Lardo, who runs New York City DEP, was a guest, and she's a big believer, and she's actually doing strategic initiatives to drive circular economy in New York City. In my opinion, regardless whether you're blessed with water or not, I think it's leaders like you that would drive that, you know, greenhouse gas reduction, recovery of solid waste, and the nutrients, reuse of water to the extent it's possible, driving energy out of the system. So I think these are bits and pieces under the umbrella of circular economy. You are actually doing it. It just have to be packaged together, so to speak. Exactly. And I think this shows the possibility of integrative thinking. If I think Where are we furthest ahead in delivering principles aligned with circular uh, economy thinking? It's in our waste uh, business. And that, I think, is informing what it is that we'll do in the future. We do have a one water uh, focus for our water wastewater master plan that you mentioned. And so I think that kind of thinking that we see in the waste area will come to bear more strongly. And I I love what you were saying there about nutrients, viewing nitrogen and phosphorus in a circular way, making sure we're valuing those nutrients and not um, discharging them to the environment. And how can we recover those nutrients and maybe use them in different ways in the future? So definitely on our minds, as are the UN Sustainable Development Goals, as are the planetary boundaries. I think all of that combined with the principles and models of circularity are going to be big influencers in the water business in uh, decades ahead. Excellent. So I want to actually talk about the 2051 master plan. You know, when I was preparing for this podcast, you're almost going to double the population. That's right from where you are today in the next 30 years, which is a fascinating, fascinating economic growth story in of itself. Tell me a little bit more about what's in this plan. What are the key tenants of this plan? So I think the key tenant of the plan is delivering the growth infrastructure to service that 2 million people that are forecasted to come to the region by 2051. So as infrastructure delivery practitioners, we need to have a deep understanding of what's the distribution of that growth throughout our region. We span a huge geography. We don't have a direct straw to a Great Lake. We rely on adjacent municipalities and by water, including from the city of Toronto. 
But we need to build infrastructure within the regional boundaries itself to convey those services to each of our nine local municipalities. So setting out those infrastructure plans, citing where that infrastructure is going to go is a big piece of that master plan. And the good news is we update it about every five years so we can recalibrate it based on what's actually happened, what growth has occurred, what new technology is out there. And so putting forward a system of pipes and plants, expanded plants, new pipes, et cetera, is a big pillar of that plant. The second is how do we infrastructure what we've already built and put in the ground? We have almost $8 billion of water wastewater infrastructure that's in the ground right now. How do we optimize it? How do we stretch it and make the best use of it? to really minimize and optimize our future capital investments by making the best use out of the infrastructure that we have out there today. And so to do that, the second pillar of the plan is thinking about things like water conservation, you know, changes in the capital stock, changes in the plumbing code that insist on water conservation fixtures have uh, reap benefits for the region, our per capita Water consumption is down significantly. And so a system that was designed for a thousand people based on old standards, now we're seeing we can get 10, 15, 20% more connected population out of the same infrastructure. And on the wastewater side, it's about driving extraneous flows out of the system, driving infiltration out, preventing inflow from getting into our system. So we can do the same thing on the sewer side, reduce peak flows, have more connected population to the same pipe, you know, that we built a decade or two ago and serve more people than we originally expected without putting more money in the ground. So the master plan is a bit of a two-headed plan, one that focuses on what we need to build and put in, the billions that we will need to spend on the infrastructure over the next decade and more than one decade out to 2051. And then for our systems, how do we infrastructure them by doubling down our efforts on water conservation and II reduction? I loved how you kept it simple. It's infra growth and infrastructure. <laughs> the two pillars that make up your master plan. I like that. You know, as I'm talking to you, Aaron, I mean, we've obviously spoken before, but I'm really fascinated by this conversation and just how you are looking at this water business. So just moving on, uh, the water conservation topic, you know, with that kind of double the growth, right? It's just not a bigger straw you're going to put in Lake Ontario or Lake Erie, whatever you're drawing this from, right? And that bigger straw is just not going to help. Can you give me some statistics of what you're working on on the conservation side and the consumption per family, per connection, going down? What are your goals there and how are you achieving it? So I'd say, you know, I'll give you some sort of round numbers, but about a decade ago, we were in the 225, 235 liters per capita per day. And our aim is to drive that down into the 125 to 150 liters per cap day. So roughly cut that in half. And we've been doing that through a number of ways. The first is because we are a growing community, we see the changes in the capital stock. And by that, I mean the new houses that are being built. You know, you couldn't buy a, a high water consumption toilet, even if you wanted to. I don't know where you'd get one from. 
because today the water fixtures that are being put in are much less water consuming than the ones that were built in houses 20, 30 years ago. So we're getting a natural piece of conservation through the changes in the capital stock. Through the old stock, we also, in the early days, I'd say eight to 10 years ago, we were subsidizing water conservation. And I think many municipalities around the globe were also in the subsidy business for new shower fixtures, new toilets. We were subsidizing those. What we've seen it sort of is the same with the new capital stock is people can't go to Home Depot or whatever their home hardware place is and buy a high water consuming toilet. So we've exited the subsidy business knowing that the change in the fixtures that people can buy now will deliver the water conservation benefits that we desire. So we have a couple of general action areas within our long-term water conservation strategy in service of those targets. And we've already saved over 27 megaliters per day through the efforts we're doing. But I'll just share a couple of our objectives. One is just back to your idea on circularity. It's promoting the responsible use of water as a resource. So I think when the public understands the value of water, I think enhanced respect and connection will engender a wiser use of water. And so we've developed various communications campaigns, uh, water heroes, uh, driving connections with water, even as a recreational resource in all its forms. So people come to respect and value the resource and, and ultimately want to help us on the responsible use of the resource. Applying this one water approach to enhance uh, system sustainability and drive efficiency. It goes back to that point we talked about on valuing water across all its dimensions. And then reducing water consumption as the population increases. We have to see even more efficiencies in consumption, more innovation in the water-consuming fixtures in homes. And in some ways, even changing the ethic and, and use of water. I mean, we see this in drought-stricken areas. But again, going back to the Canadian use of water during the summer outdoor season, maybe driving some new considerations in consumption and use during those seasons. Because that peak use, of course, as you know, drives our storage sizing and the sizing of some of our pipes and reservoirs. So if we can drive some efficiencies there, reduce the peak, reduce the sizing. And then uh, finally, being a water efficiency and conservation influence for our residents, the industry, and the regulatory partners. So trying to work with the businesses, give them some ideas on better use of water, incentivize uh, reductions in industry, and influence our regulatory partners on water conservation is part of our long-term strategy to get down right. to that mid-100s range I mentioned. It sounds like a lot of this is, I would put it under the umbrella of demand management. Yeah. You're really managing the demand. You're changing the peaks. You're flattening the things. Yeah. In another industry that really comes to my mind is the electric utility industry, because that's something that they have really done a lot in the last 15, 20 years. And uh, the water sector is just going through the process now in this space. Just jumping ahead, because I feel like we can speak for next two hours, and I just would learn so much, and the audience would learn so much from what you're trying to accomplish here. Um, you lead a digital services initiative at York. Can you kind of describe in greater detail 
what exactly you're driving and what are the success stories you're achieving as part of this initiative that you're leading? Love to. So we embarked on this uh, transformation to digital a few years back. And I'll just say, and, and I said at the outset, you know, where our staff and the work they do and the intensity of effort that they put out, it's really nothing short of inspirational to me. However, we've come to understand, as you might imagine, that it's not sustainable. And so we want even deeper analysis. We want more insights into the future. We want a more cohesive way of understanding our systems and driving efficiencies. And through staffing efforts alone, it's not going to work because it's resulting in some superhuman effort that's just not sustainable. So we believe with the transformation to digital, we can reduce or eliminate manual effort, manual processes, poor institutional knowledge, and lift up our staff's effort to gain more insights into our system for current and longer term benefits. So it's not about necessarily what we're doing. We want those same endpoints of operational excellence and continuing to sustain 90% capital execution year in and year out. It's how we do it. And we think that's the value proposition of digital. We also are pretty committed to a culture change that we think is required. We have achieved, and and I'd have to say I have led a culture that's really been pretty entrepreneurial within the department. And, you know, the good news about entrepreneurial approaches are they're unconstrained, but they can be unaligned as well. And so we've really uh, thought a lot about the transformation to digital involves us thinking about what's similar between us rather than what's different and why do I need a different digital solution? How is a forestry inspection like a water inspection, like a wastewater inspection? They're all inspections. Couldn't we use common digital platforms and not have a plethora of platforms across the department, which uh, then as senior leaders, we're trying to link together and develop insights. So Automatically, if we can double down on our commitments to core platforms like Maximo as as just one example, then I can see a big opportunity to have more insights, to be using more common tools, and to lift ourselves up in a way that we expect digital to, to help us. And we know, I mean, the Water Research Foundation has suggested that the challenges in becoming digital are not really related to technology. They are related to people and processes. So the people piece is that move from individualism to collectivism and and common solutions where appropriate and the uh, process piece for us has been huge, is really understanding our processes, documenting our processes, streamlining our processes, and then committing to have the priority processes digitized in the years ahead. When we started this journey, maybe unbelievably, maybe some of your listeners won't be surprised by this, but we had one process in the department that was digital end to end. And, you know, that's not where we want to be. So the process work, common process hierarchy, understanding of those processes enables us to be digital ready and move those into digital solutions in a uh, prioritized, standardized way. And that enables us to repurpose business processes, tools, and platforms 
for the benefit of the department and the corporation. Excellent. It sounds like everything to do with digital, you're trying to empower your workforce to be better and more efficient, right? Yeah. Just listening to this response to your past question, the two words you use that never go together, entrepreneurship and water, right? That's not how a water utility thinks, <laughs> right? So I am, I am maybe it's kind of a new theme, which I am personally as an entrepreneur fascinated to hear, as long as we don't take the risk. So 100% compliance or 100% operational excellence and yet doing entrepreneurship, that's a real challenge because entrepreneurs by definition take some level of risk, Yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned, I mean, this whole area is of, such interest to me is taking calculated risk. I said to say personally, I am a bit of a risk taker, you know, just by nature and understanding the water business. You know, we talked earlier about the need to deliver a hundred percent. When you tell someone they have to deliver a hundred percent and then go, you know, let's nice. let's change things underneath you. Those two things have to be carefully managed so people feel like they're in a culture that respects what they do, that the need to drive this high degree of performance. But within that sort of ecosystem, calculated risk can be taken and will drive benefits. And they can see quick wins from these over time. And that we are going to respect and understand their views and take those into consideration, including in the transformation to digital. Of course, we need people to come along with us and not be fearful not be fearful of job loss, that they can acquire these new digital skills over time, that they can come to understand and influence our decisions on new technology, even in the beginning, if that sounds a little sort of risky. But I think the whole water business sort of writ large across the globe has to accelerate its pace of innovation and entrepreneurial approaches, as you mentioned, Mahesh, the ones you're taking yourself, do involve some kind of calculated risk-taking. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to change the question, next question a little bit. You also play a federal role. You are on the Federal Clean Tech Foundation. Can you tell me what it is and what impact you've had? I mean, that sounds like a much more, at a higher level, responsibility in the federal government or the foundation that which you're, you're actually a part of. Yeah, I'm really so pleased to be involved uh, as a board member of Sustainable Development Technology Canada. This is a foundation that was created by the Canadian federal government to work with Canadian companies and help accelerate the implementation of new clean technologies and bring their ideas to market. So I think as a member of the board, I am currently the only board member that comes from the municipal sector. And I think the value I'd like to think I bring to the board is, you know, the board is filled with finance experts, uh, entrepreneurs, equity and venture capital investors, people that have really a deep, deep understanding of financial models and clean tech itself, which is, it's so wonderful to be connected to them and to learn from them. I think what I bring as someone who's worked in the private sector for 20 years and seen and, and recommended innovative technologies and now in the public sector, which ultimately I think is going to be a big end user of these clean technologies in the future, is an opportunity to share that understanding and maybe help convey what some of the barriers are as companies move from 
seed to start up, to scale up. And as SDDC funds companies within from seed to scale up is to really more deeply understand and share the challenges of implementation. You know, our procurement approaches, our risk appetite within the sector for a a lot of good reasons. But how do we break down these barriers and drive a different outcome in the future by accelerating the implementation of clean technology within municipalities, you know, within industry as well. But that's the fascinating part to me. I mean, it uh, it's invested well over a billion dollars in the last decade in new clean technology, clean water, clean soil, clean air, climate change reduction technologies you know, through federal funding promises to do even more in the in the years ahead. So it's really exciting for me. Many meetings, I feel like I'm a kid in a candy store uh, learning about new technology and the benefits. The staff at SDDC are just wonderful. They really do a great job at financial risk analysis, technical analysis of these companies and inform the board on the investments that they're recommending. It sounds like you're having a lot of fun being on that board. I am. I am. It might be the only engineer on the table in that board as well. Actually, maybe, maybe that could be the case. I hadn't thought about it like that. Right. But you don't speak like an engineer, which is actually, you know, I'm an engineer too, but you really evolved to be a real leader here. You know, public service is not for everyone. I, for one, cannot think how I could ever do that. It just requires a totally different mindset. What's the legacy you want to leave behind? I think it is in the connection between these systems, between water and the community. And the legacy I want to leave behind is somebody that has represented the community interest, has delivered as a reliable and trusted public servant what's expected of them, and someone that has not been afraid to break down some new frontiers in service delivery and in doing so serve the community in a way that's sustainable for generations to come, neither over-investing or under-investing in the technology needed to serve these future generations. So I'm, I'm hoping it's not only what I do, but how I've done it that influences York Region in the years ahead and the staff in the years ahead after I'm long gone and in the uh, visible footprint of the infrastructure that's been delivered under my tenure. So been thinking a lot about that recently. Yeah, legacy plays an important role in what we do in many aspects of our lives. I want to talk about if there's one challenge for either water or wastewater in Canada, what would that be? One challenge. I think the biggest challenge in the pandemic in some ways has been a bit of a blessing is this transformation to digital. We're such cost-intensive, infrastructure-intensive utilities I think the value proposition of transforming to digital and using digital, digital twins, digital analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning to inform what we do in the decades ahead is a big opportunity for the water sector across Canada and will help us make the best use out of our people and help them deliver in a better way, a more insightful way in the years ahead than the superhuman effort they've had to put in to drive those same results today. Right. Sounds like all the words I use in my daily job, what you just described, (laughs) digital twin analytics, real-time AI. Yes. I want to kind of wrap up this session, which has been nothing short of spectacular from my point of view. 
is workforce. People are so critical in everything we do. And, and I've said this many times in the past, that this sector is not necessarily attracting the best of the best talent. People like to go in tech. People like to go in finance. People like to go in management, consulting, whatever different professions are, except, of course, civil or environmental engineers. How do you attract the best talent? What is the workforce challenge? And how do you get the next generation workforce to join and be part of this sector? Yeah, what an amazing question. So this year, just interestingly, coincidentally, I'm the engineer, the Douglas Wright engineer in residence at the University of Waterloo. And it's given me some insights, including what you just said, that I, because of my own, I guess, personal passion and trajectory, but what you're saying is true, Mahesh, that you know, in fact, not only they don't want to join the sector, but the public sector writ large is not something as appealing to the generations that are, you know, in engineering school programs at university today. So I think there's a lot to think about. And there's a lot of responsibility on public sector leaders today, I think, to convey, I think they have ideas about, you know, no entrepreneurial uh, thinking highly constrained. Um, They see our workforces and cultures maybe as what they were 10 or 15 years ago, not the team-oriented, future-focused workplaces that they are today. And I think we have to do a much better job conveying to them the possibilities and the opportunities of working in the public sector. What I've come to learn about the students that are coming through, I mean, their digital skills their ability to do collaboration in ways like I know when I was going through school and I might have been the case for many of my compatriots is, you know, you'd physically get together. Collaboration was kind of this awkward uh, thing. When I look at what the engineering students are doing today, collaboration is so natural to them and I think helps unlock the benefits of digital that we talk about. And I think it starts with us as leaders and mentors, putting ourselves out there, describing the sector, describing the excitement and the future possibilities and what we're working on today and how their skill sets can contribute to that. And I think it starts there for us in environmental services in York Region. We believe, I mean, we are a top employer in Ontario because of the kind of workplace culture that we have the kind of flexible approaches that we allow. And I think this pandemic has also taught people about the need for flexibility. And I think ours is a sector that can deliver it. We have to continue to get our message out there to students and make public sector and delivering water wastewater services a real choice, a bigger choice than it's been in the past. It sure is. And I I think your role as engineer in residence at University of Waterloo will provide a real perspective on how you can strategize in this space. It's been great conversation as a child growing up on the eastern board of Canada near the water, uh, having 100% operations excellence goal for your team, in spite of the fact that you're going to nearly double the population next 30 years. You're working on infra stretch and infra growth plans simultaneously, passionate towards circular economy managing the demand of water so you can drive conservation, empowering your workforce with digital services, 
And being on the board for a billion dollars of clean tech investments for Canadian marketplace, I can't, um, there's no way for me to sum this conversation up other than it's been outstanding, Aaron, to have you as a guest. Well, it's been great for me to be together with you, Mahesh. The work that you do and the objectives that you have for your company are highly aligned with the direction of the the municipal water sector in the years ahead. So it's been a great experience for me. Thanks for asking me to be here. Thank you. Take care. Join host and Aquasite founder and CEO Mahesh Lunani again next month for another episode of 21st Century Water. Subscribe for free in Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.